listening to Risk Takers podcast series coming to you from Chesley Brown headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. Helping businesses explore better ways to anticipate and navigate risk before it comes a crisis. We've been doing this since 1990. I'm your host, Brent Brown, Chairman and CEO of Chesley Brown, and joining me this week is a very special guest and friend of mine, Joe Sherum. And Joe is the guru of turnarounds. Joe for coming. We appreciate you uh, being here. And, and Joe is not only um, a guru of turnarounds, but Joe is a good dear friend of mine. I thought it'd be interesting to to have a little conversation w- with Joe about um, how you turn around a company, what's what's critical, um, how we uh, assess risk, and um, so as as always, Joe, I like to go back to the beginning. Um, you're uh, you're an Atlanta, uh, Atlanta native, Atlanta native, and you live in Marietta now. But you're born and raised here in Atlanta. You went to Georgia State University um, with a BBA at Georgia State, an MBA at Georgia State, and you did uh, all of your pretty much your PhD with except the dissertation, I was right? The dissertation. So um, pretty educated, but uh, more than that, what I've seen about Joe is that that you are no nonsense, just kind of common sense kind of guy. So you started um, after you got out of Georgia State at uh, Lockheed. Is that right? Yeah. So everybody in Cobb County started at Lockheed. That's, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Um, if you're from this area and you don't have a connection to Lockheed, you're probably not really from this area, right? That's right. <laughs> Tell us what um, what Lockheed was doing back in the the, the mid to late '60s when you were there. Yeah, I, I went to work. I went to work at Lockheed uh, in 1965, just out of finishing my uh, undergraduate degree in accounting. Uh, this was a, the height of the C5A buildup. Okay. So there were 30,000 employees in the wow, building. Wow! 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 So 30,000 employees doing the C5, and that was back in the that was Bob Ormsby days. That's when, correct. It was another great gentleman who passed uh, the last five years or so. Um, what did you do at Lockheed at that time? I was a new graduate, so I did a lot, <laughs> I did a lot of new graduate things. Basically, I was an internal auditor, which uh, is an excellent opportunity for a young accountant because you get your nose into lots of areas of the company and begin to understand why the numbers follow the way they do. And as you've always taught me, the numbers do matter, regardless what kind of company you're running, right? That's right. So you you spent, uh, what, nearly five years at Lockheed? Is that right? Right. When you started with Lockheed, did you think it was going to be a career, or were you truly anticipating? Actually, on? I started graduate school about that time, and I thought the world was limited to the barbed wire fence around Lockheed. <laughs> so I thought I wanted to teach. Right, uh, okay. What happened was is I finished my coursework, there was a one ad that said management consultant, and uh, one thing led to another. So I went with uh, Touche Ross and Company, which is now Deloitte and Touche. Wow. That's that's fascinating, Joe, because yeah, my dad, as you know, also went to Georgia State, also was an accountant by, by education and training, and also wanted to teach, but he never did. Uh, He's also than... pointing out that I'm old enough to be his father. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, maybe, but... Uh, 
uh, an older uncle maybe. But uh, so you went with the uh, Touche Ross, which, uh, as you just said, um, nobody would recognize that name now because they're all the, the big eight is now what big four big four i think i've lost it too so um and i think every young uh accountant ultimately has to do their time at a at a big accounting firm don't you think it seems to be yeah. so you you got your time in there and um so ultimately you find your way to a company called richway um those of us Atlanta natives, we might uh, remember Richway. I do. Um, uh, most people outside of the, the Southeast probably do not, but you've probably heard of a, a company called Riches, um, which if you grew up in Atlanta, you used to go to their lighting of their big Christmas tree, and um, Macy's took that over a few years ago. But So Richway was part of um, Riches, is that right, Joe? Richway was part of Riches, yes. We were an unabashed copy of Target, which is, as we all know, is the largest Target stylish, <laughs> if you will, discount department store. Right. So they they knew that there was also money to be made in that part of the market, and that's right. They didn't want to, in effect, tarnish the name Riches by discounting. So they created the. They would have died if they heard you say that, but I think that's very accurate. <laughs> Uh, there is a book out, um, if you're interested, about the history of riches that's that's pretty fascinating. I'm not sure that it covers anything to do with Richway in that book, but um, Joe is extremely familiar with Richway because you you spent uh, nearly a decade there, didn't you? A little, a little more, ago. yeah. So you, you ended up um, ultimately as their chief financial officer. That's correct. And um, the reason that none of you have... Of, you have heard of Richway now is because it doesn't exist, right? It was merged with Target in uh, 1986, 87. Wow. So, so it was. Um, it kind of had its. It did have a good run for a while, it right? Did. And it just uh, like a lot of companies, a lot of businesses, they kind of run their course, and and uh, it was time to to merge or, or move on. So that kind of brings you to a new part of your career where you've really, um, well, you've had a, a hugely successful career to that point, but you really come to what I call the the, the turnaround guy, the, the consultant. So um, tell us how that kind of, was that on purpose, Joe, or did you? <laughs> I, I, I had a boss once who said that if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. <laughs> and uh, that fits, I, I think. Anyone who's ever been a, quote, independent consultant will grudgingly admit he's an executive looking for a job. Right. (laughs) And so I would go in on an interim basis, uh, either as a CEO or CFO, uh, to troubled companies. So, and, you know, when we talk about troubled companies, are those companies that are, they're already filed for bankruptcy or they're destined to bankruptcy if they don't do something or or are they truly anticipating to turn around what what, did, what were you thinking when you would go into them well you the mind is a funny thing you know you can convince yourself anything can happen uh <laughs> but basically uh when you are when you're in this situation your objective is to avoid chapter 11 right. because you lose a lot of control in that the objective is to maintain your cash flow and to get yourself into a positive cash flow position. 
So the, what's the first thing you would do at a, a company to look yeah. at their financials? The Brent gets tired of hearing me say cash is everything, but, <laughs> but it, it, it truly is. The first thing you do is, it, let's do it this way. This, this, is an, this is an emergency room. Right. Okay, so a patient has just been brought in. The first thing you do is stabilize the patient. Right. If he's bleeding, you stop the bleeding, and the blood in a retail or any business, mm-hmm. the blood is the cash flow. Right. So the first thing you have to do is get that under control. Get yourself to as close to a neutral cash position as possible. Mm-hmm. That lets you cover your expenses and gives you time to find the ways to reorganize your profits. So that that's actually a, a pretty interesting way to, to put it. If if you're a doctor, your your first objective is to stop the bleeding. That's right. Th- then you can figure out why it's why it's bleeding and and kind of go from there. But so that I can't think of a better way to describe it. So, you, in a, if a company is bleeding red ink, you got to stop that before you can even figure out what the big problems are, right? That's exactly right. And, and then once you determine that, is that at what phase in, in a turnaround, Joe? Do you do you do you think that? Uh, again, in my case, I would either be the CFO or the CEO, mm-hmm. and there would be other executives who we were trying to keep because of the strength of the company. Right. I would be moving on, but the objective is to leave a cadre of people right. that can run the business. Now, let's, let's use uh, retailing as an example just because it's easier. you got 10 stores. What's the profit? What's the cash flow out of those stores? How much is each store com- How much is each store contributing to operating profit? Okay. If you have a store that is not contributing to profit, you then have to ask yourself, why am I incurring this expense? Okay. And those are the things you look for. You're looking for the alternatives that will help you identify the weak expense slash operating systems. Right. And then finding ways to fix those systems. So, uh, you know, by, I know we've we've talked about um, Jack Welch over over our many conversations together, and uh, you know, he always said with his companies and and with GE that you either what is it first or second or you got rid of them. That's right. Uh, how do you fall on that philosophy? I've heard you speak of similar circumstance. I've seen some good people move when they didn't have to, right, or shouldn't have, but. The fact is an executive has to make a decision, uh, and the decisions can be what is the individual's strengths, mm-hmm. what is his ability to do the hard things, because there are always casualties in a turnaround. Right. Uh, it's hard to look a man in the face and say, I screwed up, but you don't have a job anymore. Right. But those are the things that have to be done, and I think that what Mr. Belch is talking about is looking for those people, those personality traits mm-hmm. who can do the hard things, and, but more importantly, find the strategic direction for the company. Right. You might be a grocery store today. Maybe tomorrow you're a grocery store and a discount store. Uh, right. And you've seen that in, in, the, in the marketplace. So the, you, you piqued my interest on, on something. Maybe we're going on a little sideline here, but... If you're a, a grocery store, um, and then you decide to also open a, um, 
Oh gosh, uh, an airport transport company. Yeah, do you see people that uh, that oftentimes stray too far from their core expertise? Let's say. In my opinion, they do, and you've heard me say it before. It's a, it's a matter of two things. First, what's the what is the demand? Yeah. Are you a new product? Are you a new business? Or are you extrapolating on the business that has already been developed in other areas? The the hard thing for me to see you you use two and I've already forgotten but you, <laughs> you use two examples that were dramatically different. Right. There are other examples that you can see that go together. If you recall, the whole discounting area mm-hmm. started with Walmart in 100,000 square foot stores and they had grocery integrated with the right, other. Right. Okay, so everybody thought that was great and they copied them. Then they looked and Walmart had started building 60,000 square foot stores and taking out the grocery. Uh, wow. We're all lemmings, okay? Right. The, the real issue is where you are in this niche whatever it may be, right? where are you, what are your ways to ex- exploit your strengths? Mm-hmm. And that that can in, involve, I'm old, I'm old school, <laughs> it can involve data processing, right. okay, the systems that keep your, your company running. It can involve the logistics of getting your product or your raw materials where they belong. Right. And... In each of this, without going any further, just in those categories, there are infinite nuances that you can look for. Mm-hmm. Uh, if freight costs run six percent, who's running it for two? Right. Uh, and how do you how can you get there? So, but I, but I think you've always cautioned me as well to make sure there's some correlation to what you what you do. Don't don't go out and try to do something that that. You don't have a proven expertise in, or uh, yeah. Even though I've been a victim of doing that myself, <laughs> recently, uh, the, uh, it's always good to look at somebody else. But the uh, again, I always say, cash is king. Yeah. Where is the cash flow most likely to come? Where is your growth most likely to come? Mm-hmm. If you've got several areas that you're managing. Are they all contributing to profit? If they are, things are beautiful. Right. Uh, if you've got areas or sub-areas that are not contributing cash to the bottom line, then there's room for, unless you use the word turnaround, right. there is room. And, and, you know, I'm 78 years old, so I'm not looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, uh, the issue is, the issue is toughening your, Self, as you look at your numbers, right. you may love a, 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 a pickup truck of right. a certain make. Is it the best buy? Do you really need it? If if you drive a Mercedes, wouldn't a Chevrolet get you there at the same yeah. speed? Yeah. I'm not advocating that per se, but it's the process of what are my alternatives right. and how do they fit? Well, I, I think that's a good point, and I, yeah, it reminds me of a another executive um that I'm, I'm close to that, that had the, the founder of his company, they were in the real estate business and they were selling a, a large tower and it wasn't selling right away. So the executives, him included, were touting to the, the owner, 
what they could do with the building and and all these these things they could turn and and the owner stopped them in mid sentence and said don't fall in love with our product exactly and i think that's what you're saying is you know I know I'm I'm victim to this as well with with our company that I've, I I love what we do I have a passion for it but but you know if it's not making sense financially you got to drop back and reassess correct right which could include not just throwing that away but finding another way to merge it or do right the product within your current cost structure and and that's that's part of what a what your expertise in turnaround is, is is determining whether or not it's a keeper, something to move on, or if there's an expertise, would it be safe to say that maybe a a hidden expertise because of the way you're operating a company that maybe you haven't identified yet? Uh, I don't uh, know what that would be, but... I don't know, but you're making it sound really good. <laughs> <laughs> I think the issue is we all, in an organization, we all have our our biases in terms of how it should right. work, etc. In order to really make an impact, again, you have to impact cash in some way. Right. It can be as simple as leasing a product mm-hmm. as opposed to buying the product. It can be makes sense. It can be leasing employees as opposed to hiring employees. And I'm just making things up as I go. But it boils down to their infinite alternatives to handle to handle the cash that's coming through your business right your banker can help you uh, and you can find that we in my company the one I ran for 20 years we found that oh they wouldn't lend me the money mm-hmm. but they'd leased the device to me which uh. turned out to be great a friend of a banker told me that, told me to go to another bank to get the money. Right. Okay. After three years of doing that, we turned it into a three-year auto loan to pay for the product. Wow. And, and so, you're, again, you're managing your product mm-hmm. and your cost to go with it so that you can have, and again, cash is king, you can have a positive cash flow and theoretically not use, not be making money. I could could understand that. And, and sometimes at the same token you could be making money on paper but not having cash flow to keep up is that right yeah so yeah joe as as we as we talk about the the different businesses that you've been involved in and um not only directly but that you've seen over the years you know uh, in in our business we we talk a lot about obviously security and security management but um more often than not we find ourselves talking about uh, um, corporate espionage and uh, yeah, obviously, Chesley Brown deals with with corporate counter espionage. So, d- did you see a lot of that with companies that you're involved in? People stealing their secrets. I was working in mid level, hundred fifty million dollar and less companies. I saw more dishonest practices in those size companies than really? I ever saw in a billion dollar company. Really, I think part of it is the internal. Uh, Support that the company gives to protect their products. Uh, right. But the other is just there's a companies have a level of, of uh, ethics mm-hmm. that they follow. And when you run into a creditor who you say, you haven't paid me in six months, and you say, well, you don't need the money, I need it. Right. Uh, that kind of mentality it was not something I had encountered in a big company, but it's it's prevalent, in my opinion, in, in the smaller company. In really, the smaller company. Hmm. 
I've always used the term that our competitors are not hindered by the boundaries of integrity. Uh, it sounds like you're. <laughs> sounds like you you saw that a lot, and and so uh, you know what we deal with is is a lot of companies that don't think that they they have secrets that that are valuable to be stolen, but you've seen that that they do, and they maybe they don't guard them as well as they should at times. Particularly in new products. Really, so new new product development is yeah, and uh, everybody tries to differentiate their product. Yeah. And some products really can't be differentiated other than in the mind of the consumer. You're better at that than I am. But seriously, the, uh, if, if I have a glass and it's got water in it, it should be to be satisfactory to me, but you'll make me want a different glass. Right. And that's called salesmanship. I'm an accountant. <laughs> okay. You're a good salesman too, but uh, point well taken. So uh, I think the bottom line is that there's – Every company, if you have any product or service worth anything, that you have potential of uh, that being stolen from you. Absolutely. And, and so you got to pay attention to that. And and I'm sure as part of a of, of a turnaround expert, um, you're looking for that type of stuff too. You know what's what's bleeding off because of it's exactly being stolen or well, and worse as the company goes down, the morale goes down and the ability to justify. Right. Looking after yourself goes up. Interesting. And, and uh, you know, I'd I like to think most of us are basically honest. Right. But, you know, here's a, an everyday occurrence. A friend puts a quarter in and gets a newspaper out, and then he holds the door open so you can get it. Right. Uh, never occurred to him that that was stealing. Uh, but, but it is. But it is. Yeah. And uh, when you get into shoplifting, the price tag switching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the women that are out there capable of literally biting the security cat tag off of the garment. <laughs> <laughs> they usually wear purple lipstick. <laughs> but, uh, um, again, I, I think where money is concerned, the mind stops playing its normal, rational game. Right. And the temptation becomes so great, uh, it doesn't matter what business you're in. Uh, it really matters, I think, the ease with which right. it can be done. So when when you feel like something's happening or you you uh, sense something's happening, the best advice is to, to go find an expert to dig into it and see what's going on. Or maybe even to... to it, it, unless you're talking about just plain stealing off the dot, right. that sort of thing. Right. Know, but when you get into the paperwork... Which I believe is ninety percent. Right. Uh, when you get into the paperwork, it takes an expert to know what they're looking at. So maybe even trying to get ahead of the the curve before you before you're a victim, make sure you see where you're vulnerable. Right. Maybe have someone do a penetration test or something like right. that. That that's interesting. So as we as we get towards wrapping this up, I, I'm interested to hear how you value value companies, multiples, and and uh, <laughs> EBITDA, you know, we hear that term over and over, and and I didn't even know what EBITDA was until, you know, not too long ago. Well, I, you know, if if uh, if you're walking down the street and you see a pile of manure, I'll go look for a shovel, and other people will go look for a pony. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that that has a lot to do with the valuation of a company. Right. There, there are all sorts of formulas from multiples of EBITDA to multiples of sales that depends on the industry if you're mm-hmm. selling a law practice you're probably getting two years worth of value right if you're selling a 
retail chain, you may be getting one year's worth of value because of the sheer volume of cash. Right. Uh, But uh, there is no such thing as a right answer. (laughs) I am convinced of that. So be cautious to people that that just have one way of putting a price on something or or if someone, I mean, every business is so different. My personal take is that until you get in and see how they operate, you don't really know how to price that, right? That's right. Or you need somebody who is in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. New industries are probably tougher than those that have some some pattern because you can usually find a benchmark right. for what a specific organization should cost or what a specific uh, expense should be. Well, uh, and along those lines, Joe, is it safe to say that, um, let's say XYZ company is losing money, but the B Corporation over here says, I don't really care what they're losing because I know if they're if these two numbers are correct, I know what we can take with that product, and, and it works for us because we have sunken costs that they can't afford to do. In other words, it's more valuable for the B Company than it is for the guys running it. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Um, I don't. I haven't seen it, but it makes yeah. sense. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I would like to get in one thing just real quick. Okay. To those of you who come out of a big corporation and into a small corporation, and I was a CFO, it's real money, folks. Yeah. If if you have a chain of a thousand women's shop and you want to put one one hundred dollar chair right. in each dressing room, multiply it out. Decisions don't usually get made that way. That says we need a we need a chair for the right. dressing room, and the rest takes place, and that's how the cash begins to get away. So that, y'all be careful here. That makes a lot of sense. That uh, you know. And I, my experience too, Joe, is that you know, bringing people from bigger companies, they're not, they don't have a sense that, it's, that it is real money because they've never written the check, they've never paid a payroll, and sometimes it's hard for them to, to figure out that's coming out of someone's. And now add the third party financing. Right. You know, your venture capitalists, your your uh, partnering firms, etc. Right. Uh, they are going to make the decision, and the decision they make may not exactly match what's best interest of the company but it makes the numbers look good makes sense so so our our takeaway today is is um corporate espionage does happen especially in the smaller companies cash is king cash is important right joe um and to, to pay attention to what you're doing you know making sure that that you're what's the best way to say this well really what you're saying is if i'm doing it right the thing, the, if I'm doing the right things, I'm really taking care of the right, the, the vulnerability. Right. The question is, what are the right things we need to do? And are we, for example, if it's an internal audit report that's mm-hmm. on a, that specifies X number of failures, are they being addressed? Does anybody hold the manager accountable? Mm-hmm. Which ties right back into the the need for the need for internal controls and right. what you're, and 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 if. Not to put words in your mouth, but if if you don't have the expertise to understand some of that for a company you're running, find someone that does. You got it. Well, uh, the other thing I would like to encourage um, those folks out here listening is to find someone in your life like Joe Sherrill. Uh, you know, find someone that's 
been there, done that, someone that's uh, a great mentor to you, someone that's willing to just sit down and, you know, sometimes it's it's the uh, the nuts and bolts that you need to discuss. Sometimes it's just concept. And sometimes it's just the reassurance that, yeah, you're on the right track. But, you know, I've been there, done that, and I'm, I'm reassuring you on that. So, Joe, thank you for being that person to me, and, and thank you for your time today. Thank you for tuning in today. If uh, you'd like to give us some feedback on this podcast or share some of your experiences, then please email us at risktakers at chesleybrown.com. Thank you much for spending your time with us. And as always, you can find our links to the podcast and our notes from this episode and others on our website at chesleybrown.com forward slash risk takers. And we will see you next time.